Father God, we do thank you for the wonder of the kingdom of God. And Lord God, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, open our minds, our hearts, to all that it means uh, to be uh, part of the kingdom of God, that we might live more faithfully for the King Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. For a number of years, I was involved in a um, Scripture Union beach mission over in uh, North Wales. It happened each summer for two weeks. A team of 50 or so uh, people involved with it. Many returning year after year, in some cases for decades, amazingly. And being part of that team remains for me one of the great encouragements and faith builders uh, of my Christian life. There's nothing more encouraging and thrilling, nothing that kind of builds bonds of love and fellowship more uh, than doing gospel work together with people. It was simply great, a great time. A couple of years ago, quite randomly, I bumped into somebody down at uh, Riverside, a guy who'd been on the team, and we got in conversation. And during the conversation, very quickly, he made clear to me that Jesus now played no part in his life. Time had moved on. Jesus was nothing more than a footnote to a previous existence. And as I sort of walked to my car outside Morrison's, I had this kind of sense of sadness and and bewilderment, really. A kind of question ran through my mind. How can it be that a heart that once seemed to burn so strongly for Christ now seems so cold and hard? Why hadn't he stuck with it? Maybe to an extent that's true for some of us here this morning. Perhaps we look back on kind of halcyon days when things were going great for us as a Christian. We were going great guns. Times when our hearts were filled with the wonder and excitement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It kind of overflowed into our lives, into the lives of others. But now it just seems a little bit more dull. We feel perhaps tired, a bit jaded, a bit discouraged. Maybe for one or two of us, there's a question even in our mind, why am I sticking with this? At all. Well, in the passage we're looking at uh, this morning, Paul and Barnabas have a very clear uh, purpose, and that is to strengthen and encourage. They want to strengthen and encourage the new Christians so they stick with the faith in Jesus Christ through thick and through thin. Do you see that in verse 21? We're on page 1109. Please do open it if you haven't got it open already. 1109. So verse 21 of chapter 14, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, preached the good news in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We're only dipping into the uh, book of Acts in the series in the Kingdom of God, and this passage comes towards the end uh, of what has been the first missionary journey, if you like, uh, of the fledgling church. Back at the beginning of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned uh, and sent out by the home church in Antioch to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. It's the first time that there's been this sort of vision and determination to send people out with that specific purpose, to go and preach to all people of Jesus Christ. And after a remarkable uh, missionary journey, which Luke describes for us in chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas, they head back uh, to their home church in Antioch for a debrief. 
You know, no doubt he recounts stories of the many Jews and Gentiles who were converted. And as they head back, they, they go through all the towns, or some of the towns, that they visited, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them uh, to remain true to the faith. True to the faith. The message of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth, died on a cross, and rose back to life to bring forgiveness, joy, and hope. That is the faith that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching. And that is the faith that they want the disciples to stick with. Well, I think these verses speak of two realities that encouraged and strengthened the disciples, the early disciples. And these two realities should encourage and strengthen us as we seek to live for Christ today. But, you know, both of these realities are actually quite difficult. They're quite shocking uh, in their own way. They're not, they're not feel-good verses. It's not the sort of thing you'd find on a, on a bookmark or a mug in a Christian bookshop with a picture of a dove next to it. It's not that kind of stuff. They're much more gritty and more profound than that. But they're realities that we need to grasp if we're to live faithfully uh, for Christ. So reality, reality number one uh, is this. The path to God's kingdom brings hardship. The path to God's kingdom brings hardship. Just look at verse 21. Paul and Barnabas say to the disciples, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You see, Paul is teaching uh, these young Christians that they must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They must. It's a very strong word uh, being used. And in many ways, this is something of a new idea, because back in chapters 13 and 14, there's not really much about opposition to Christians in general. It's all about Paul, the hardships that he encounters as he goes out uh, and preaches the gospel. But then here we are, Paul saying, we, we the disciples, must go through many hardships uh, to enter the kingdom of God. It's something that is true of all believers. It's not that they should go out looking for a tough time, But hardships will come the way of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And here Paul is teaching about the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the journey to the new creation that one day Christ will usher in, that day when the kingdom of God will be perfected. And he says it is a journey that must bring hardship. It's a necessity. I think it's worth us just very briefly looking at some of the hardships that Paul faced And how he responds to them. Because Luke has structured chapters 13 and 14 deliberately to hold up Paul's perseverance to us uh, as a kind of example of Christian discipleship. So he wants us to watch uh, the way that Paul Paul perseveres uh, through adversity and to learn how how we might do the same. So just turn back to page 1102, chapter 9, uh, briefly in verse 15. Chapter 9, verse... Uh, 15. This is shortly after Paul is introduced to us and the tasks that God has for Paul and the implications that flow from that are very clear. Look at what the Lord says in verse 15. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that is precisely what we then see fulfilled through chapters 
13 and 14. And it is an inspiring and humbling thing to watch, this perseverance. Paul is a man of consistency and integrity. He's willing to do anything for the sake of completing that work that God has given him to do. So just flick forward to uh, chapter 13, shortly before the passage we've been looking at today. Look at verse 6 of, of chapter 13. Where Paul and Barnabas are on Cyprus preaching the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They arrive in Paphos. They meet a Jewish sorcerer, Bar-Jesus. What does a sorcerer do in verse 8 of chapter 13? He opposes them. And he tries to turn the Gentile uh, proconsul from the faith that they've been preaching. So they've got opposition. So they go down to Pisidian Antioch, different Antioch to the home church one. They preach of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, verse 38. Chapter 13, the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. Do you see that in verse 44? But then look at verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. So now you've got jealousy and abuse. So Paul answers boldly, doesn't he? Verse 46, Gentiles are converted. The word spreads throughout the region. Verse 49. But what is the response of the Jews in verse 49? Do you see that? They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they faced opposition, jealousy and abuse, now persecution and expulsion. So they go to Iconium, chapter 14. Do you see the beginning? Verse 1, they speak effectively in the synagogues. And what follows in verse 5 of chapter 14? There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. So now you've got a plot to kill. So they head south to Lystra and Derby. They continue to urge people to go to the living God in verse 15, chapter 14. But what happens in verse 19... Some of the Jews from Antioch and Iconium had tailed them, travelled about 100 miles, won over the crowd, and what happens? Paul is stoned, dragged outside the city, and left for dead. It's a pattern, isn't it, of increasing, increasingly intense opposition. You've got opposition, jealousy and abuse, persecution and expulsion, a plot to kill, and then attempted murder. You know, this would have been really tough stuff for Paul to take, because until quite recently, he'd been a Pharisee. So he'd been a a respected man, right at the centre of social and religious life. Not now. So you'd forgive Paul, wouldn't you, for thinking, you know what, I need a break. A timeout, a bit of chillaxing, as they call it. No one would have criticised him uh, for that. He could have retired, written some sort of account of his missionary adventures, lived off the royalties. But, but what does he do? It is nothing short of astonishing, is it? Look at verse 20. Chapter 14, verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. You know, Paul would have been in a terrible state, a bloody state, after this attempted murder, not far from being dead. Yet he gets up, And he starts again. And do you see the journey that he makes? 
in verse 20. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Do you see what's happening? Paul is deliberately retracing his steps. He is revisiting all of the places he's come through. And he's still preaching. He's still doing the stuff that caused him all the hassle first time round. It is astonishing when you think about it. I wonder how you react to this account of the opposition that Paul faced. I think in some ways it can feel slightly distant from us, can't it? It does to me. It seems to be the sort of stuff that happens in a different world uh, to our own. And Paul's response seems to be something beyond what we can uh, manage. There are, are, of course, different hardships. Not every Christian is going to experience the same number of hardships or the same severity. And there is that lovely biblical promise that no one will be tested beyond what we can bear. We will never be tested beyond what we can bear. But it's true that many Christians today, as Alan mentioned, are facing terrible hardships to their faith. Recent weeks have been horrific accounts of Christians being killed in Nigeria for their faith. We should pray for these situations and be thankful that we are not going to face those in this country with the protections and the freedoms that we have. But Paul says we must go through hardships. Faith will have its cost. And if we've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, we know that's true. I was reading this week of a consultant paediatrician who sent a prayer to colleagues uh, in his department. He was disciplined and then dismissed for gross misconduct and then lost his claim uh, in the employment tribunal. Now, of course, we don't know all of the details, but it is perhaps an illustration of the culture that we live in, isn't it? A culture of kind of oppressive uh, tolerance. At times, it is difficult for us to say that we believe in truth, never mind proclaim it boldly uh, like Paul did. If we do, what's on the line where we can lose friendships, be overlooked, treated with indifference, laughed at, sacked even, all because we follow Jesus. Some of us here this morning will be going through some tough times and facing opposition of different kinds, and it would not be human, would it? If the thought did not cross our mind that somehow this shouldn't be happening to me. Shouldn't be happening to me to wonder if we're on the wrong uh, path. But the reminder from these verses is that this is the normal Christian life. Hardships must happen. It doesn't mean that we're on the wrong path. In the end, if you think about it, Paul and Barnabas are doing no more than echo uh, the words of Jesus in, in John's Gospel, chapter 15, where he says, If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. (coughs) But I wonder, as we consider Paul's um, actions, a question perhaps hangs in the air, doesn't it? The kind of question is, why? Why why do this? Why put yourself uh, through all this, Paul? 
our eldest daughter, daughter Isabel, has just started her second year at school. And during the past couple of weeks, there have been a couple of occasions where she's come home and she said, you know, mummy, daddy, so-and-so didn't want to play with me in the playground today, or I was left out of this. So-and-so said they don't want to be my friend uh, anymore. And I find that really difficult to deal with, much more so than I ever expected I would do uh, as a father. It makes me feel sad, quite protective, want to charge in and carry her out, but you can't do that. <laughs> but think about this. How much harder will it be if she gives her life to Christ? If she puts her trust in Christ, she must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I suppose many of us here who are Christians this morning will be desperate for our children to put their trust in Christ. Yet it must bring many hardships for them. So why do we encourage this? Why do we pray this for our children? Well, surely the answer is found in the second half of our passage in the second uh, reality. I think the second reality is this. The door of the kingdom is open for all. The door of the kingdom is open for all. Do you see in verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appoint leaders in the church, probably another way of encouraging the young Christians, keeping them on track. They pray, they fast, and they commit the leaders to the Lord. And then... Paul and Barnabas start to travel again. They go through Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, and down to Italia, preaching the word of God. And then look what happens in verse 26 as they return back to their sending home church in Antioch. Look at verse 26. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together, and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You know, this is the thing that keeps them going, isn't it? This is what drives them on. This is what puts into perspective all of the opposition that they've been facing. God is at work. And through them, verse 27, God is at work and they are part of it. They are players in God's unfolding platform plan of redemption. What is God doing? He's opening the door of faith to all, not just to to Jews, but to all non-Jews as well, to Gentiles. A few weeks ago, America, probably remember, celebrated the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's March on Washington and his famous I Have a Dream uh, speech. And as part of the Let Freedom Ring ceremony, Bill Clinton the previous American president spoke eloquently as always and reminded the crowds of how the civil rights movement had pushed what had famously been described as the stubborn gates of freedom. The stubborn gates of freedom. And so 50 years on, Clinton urged the crowd to keep on pushing the stubborn gate of freedom. While there is no greater freedom, is there, than being part of the kingdom of God? And yet the gate or the door to the kingdom could not be any less stubborn. The door is wide open for all to enter in. God has turned the handle, opened the door, and said, come in. And that's what Paul experienced in his own missionary journey. In past generations, God's work was confined in the world to the people of Israel in one particular geographical place. 
But now the call for repentance is for everyone in the world. You know, so often we talk about globalisation as this great 20th century uh, phenomenon. And it's, actually, it's actually a 1st century uh, phenomenon. God is going global. And the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all nations. And Paul is loving being part of it. He's excited about being part of it. Just very briefly, flick back at some of those passages we looked at a few moments ago, just to see how God uh, is at work. Just go back to chapter 13. And the sorcerer at Bar-Jesus. We saw the opposition of the sorcerer. How he tries to turn the Gentile proconsul from the faith. But what happens in verse 12 of chapter 13? The proconsul believed. Gentile proconsul believed because he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. I'll look ahead to verse 45 of chapter 13. Here we saw how when the Jews were filled with jealousy and they talked abusively against Paul. So verse 46, Paul and Barnabas speak to them boldly. They say, look, this is God's plan. This is what the prophet Isaiah meant when he said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's what God wants to see. It's what God said would happen. God always intended that the door of faith should be open to all. And what is the response of that preaching? Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the words of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And then finally, the beginning of chapter 14. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas preached in the Jewish synagogue. What happens? A great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. The door of faith is open to all. Paul and Barnabas are seeing Jew and Gentile alike turn to Christ before their own eyes and they are captured, they're overwhelmed, they're mesmerised by what God is doing. And that is what fires their preaching. That is the foundation of their endurance. God is the God of the whole earth and he wants everyone to hear of the good news of a king who died on a cross for them. A Jewish king who died for all. And he wants them and us to proclaim it. Do you ever wonder why some of the traditional Jewish believers were so enraged uh, by what Paul and Barnabas were teaching? Why were they willing to go to any length? Murder even, to stop uh, people coming to Christ. Doesn't it seem a bit of an overreaction? I think if that's what we think, it's because we totally failed to grasp what a complete scandal, if you like, the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's completely scandalous. Why? Because it's completely free. It's all about outrageous grace. You see, the Jewish believers, they thought they earned their place in the kingdom of God. They reckoned they were privileged could get through there by living the right way, doing the right things, eating the right things, mixing with the right people. And here is Paul just chucking these principles out of the window. They don't apply. It all just seems outrageously free and easy, doesn't it? It's hard to 
hard to take. Where is the justice in all of that? Yet if you think about it, what does Jesus do as he hangs there on the cross at Gethsemane? He turns to the criminal next to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And who is Paul, this man chosen uh, to carry the name of the Lord before Jew and Gentile alike? He's an accomplice to murder, no less. God is so great that he uses the earth as a footstool. Yet who is, he, who is he using to take the good news of the gospel out to the world today? Sinful you and sinful me. In the upside-down kingdom of God, justice is everything you would not expect it to be. But it is all the more amazing for it. The gospel of grace is a scandal, yet it is true. We can join the kingdom of God just by trusting in Jesus. We only have to receive his grace and forgiveness. It is completely free. The door is open to all, a promise for all people, for all time. So for those who want to earn their way in, it is a terrible disappointment. But for those who realise they will never be able to earn it, never be able to earn it, it is a wonderful relief. Just two questions as we finish. First, can I ask you, are you thrilled by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does it fill you with joy and thankfulness? I think often we can suffer from a form of gospel boredom. It can be as if someone's injected us with an anaesthetic and we become kind of numb uh, to what the gospel actually is. The gospel should astonish us daily. God in his grace rescued us when we could never rescue ourselves. It's amazing. And we need to pray that we would recapture somehow that sense of wonder and thankfulness. Because without it, what hope have we got to have the motivation or the courage to tell others about Jesus? If we're struggling in that, I wonder if in part it's because we've lost our wonder at the outrageous scandal of the gospel. And if we don't get it, it's going to be tough for us as well to withstand all that gets chucked at us as we do so. I think the second question is this. In what ways does your desire to live a life of ease get in the way of persevering with the gospel? What ways does your desire to live a life of ease get in the way of persevering (coughs) with the gospel? Certainly one of the things that has struck me this week uh, from this passage is that Paul recognised that Jesus did not owe him a life of ease wasn't part of the bargain, if you like. He didn't expect a life of ease. He had the right expectations from the outset. And he didn't make decisions that would contribute to a life of ease. So day after day, the only thing that mattered to him, more in the end than life itself, was that he might remain faithful to Jesus and to speak the good news of the gospel. At the top of his list of priorities was completing the work that God had given him to do. That is certainly not anywhere near 
where I am at. What about you? We need to pray that we, we would want more of that for our lives. That God, by his Spirit, would enable us to persevere for Jesus in what is and will be a thrilling adventure in partnership with God, whatever adversity may come our way. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for uh, the wonder uh, of uh, grace. We do thank you that Jesus steps into uh, the mess of our world to meet us uh, where we're at uh, and to bring us um, back to himself. And Father, we do ask that you would give us a renewed sense of wonder at the good news uh, of Jesus Christ, that we would be thrilled uh, by all that it is, that we would understand it uh, more deeply. And Lord God, that it would fire us to want to uh, go out wherever we are, to speak and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That we might be thrilled to be part of uh, your redemptive plan to bring the whole of creation back to order. Would you please give us courage and perseverance in that and a desire to see your name upheld and you glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.